said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning, and Lord, we are filled with great expectations and Lord, we want those expectations to be for you to show up here and to work in our hearts. So, Lord, that is what we ask. We pray that you would work through your word and you would do so for your glory and our good, whether that's for the first time ever in our lives or the millionth time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So it's finally here. And... uh, I get to preach the first sermon ever in this church building is our church home. No pressure, right? No pressure at all. Um, And I just, I just want to say something up front. I am going to talk about the new building. I will talk about this at some point, but there is something else that actually gets center stage today. And uh, that something is far more important than the fact that we're in a building that we now own. And that is because today is Palm Sunday, which is taking us right to the heart of what it means to be a Christian and what's at the center of the Christian faith. Because what happens on Palm Sunday and the week that follows is actually the thing that changes everything. 
So I promise I'll talk about the new building, but we got to talk about something else first. And that's what I want to focus in on this morning. Now, you know that life is filled with expectations. You probably had expectations coming in here this morning and and you're wondering, is it going to live to my expectations? And uh, now you know whether it does or doesn't. (laughs) You're making evaluations on everything here. Uh, But if you haven't figured it out by now, life will disappoint you. Your friends are going to disappoint you. Your family's going to disappoint you. Your spouse is going to disappoint you. Your kids are going to disappoint you. Your mentors are going to disappoint you. And wait for it, your church is going to disappoint you. And it is not a matter of if. It is just a matter of when. Disappointment in one sense is simply the failure to meet expectations. Which happens again and again and again in our lives. And that's why uh, Anne Lamott writes that expectations are resentments under construction. Which perhaps is a bit too cynical, uh, but there is a whole lot of truth in there. Because how many times have you said to yourself or to others, I had hoped. I I had hoped that getting married would cure my loneliness. I had hoped that getting a degree from Stanford would give me a better job than I have right now, or a job at all. I had hoped that having kids would make me feel whole. I had hoped that becoming a Christian would make my life easier instead of more difficult. See, life is going to disappoint you. And I think this needs to actually be said. So will Jesus. Now, that might sound irreverent to say in a context like a church, but I think this is really important to hear because all too often we have expectations for Jesus and he refuses to meet them. And today is a great day to talk about this because today is called Palm Sunday in the church calendar. And today was a day that was filled with great expectations. You know, Palm Sunday is actually pretty confusing when you think about how the rest of the week turns out. It begins with high hopes. Multitudes celebrating and praising God as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. But it ends with Jesus hanging on a cross. Palm Sunday always turns into Good Friday, eventually. And that was unexpected. And that led to massive disappointment. Now, we're in our 57th week in the Gospel of Luke. And we, we, yeah, I know. So, uh, Iron's like, can we please not do this long of a series again? So I'm like, we'll go as long as it takes to get through the book, Iron. Um, So, if I could summarize in a phrase what we have learned in the Gospel of Luke, it is this, is that Jesus is a different kind of king who brings a different kind of kingdom. And it's all here for us in this passage this morning, and it is conveyed in Jesus' actions. Now, I want you to think about symbolic action for a second, because we actually live in a world of it, right? The handshakes, the hugs, the smiles, right? They're symbolic action. They convey something, but um, they sometimes rise to a you know, bigger scale, like kneeling during the national anthem, or wearing pink during Breast Cancer Awareness Month, or using a certain finger on your hand in traffic 
when somebody cuts you off, right? These are symbolic gestures. They are actions that convey, convey meaning and significance. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that Jesus' actions on Palm Sunday and shortly after are screaming at us, I am a different kind of king who's bringing a different kind of kingdom. That's what I want to talk about. So we're going to look at three actions that are before us in this passage this morning. And the first one is Jesus riding into Jerusalem. Okay, so up until now in Jesus' ministry, he's kept somewhat of a low profile. You don't lose moments where he heals somebody and he says, don't tell anybody. And you're like, what is up with this? Why is he doing this stuff? But now, now he does something that makes a wide open public claim for himself. He tells his disciples, I'm going to ride into Jerusalem. And so he sends two of them to go get him a colt. And uh, some think maybe Jesus had prearranged this exchange. It's not his first time in Bethany. Um, others say, no, like this is the Lord exercising his sovereignty. It doesn't really matter. He gives them a password that when they're asking for the cold, they say, well, why do you need this? As the Lord has needed it. Because Jesus is planning a royal entrance into Jerusalem. See, that's what a king would do in the ancient world. Is they would ride in to the place that now would be their territory. Like we all have these pageantries to honor VIPs uh, in every culture, right? Presidential candidates, they're greeted by crowds, you know, of loyalists and, and enthusiasts when they get off their private jets. Celebrities get the red carpet treatment before the Academy Awards. And in that culture, a king would ride into town surrounded by crowds who cheered and celebrated. And Jesus is saying it's time. I'm riding into Jerusalem. And the people are crying out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a quote from Psalm 18. It's a Passover psalm. A song of God acting to deliver his people. So you can imagine their dopamine systems are on overdrive at this moment. These are great expectations. What is about to happen? They have seen Jesus do crazy stuff. Heal people. Cleanse a leper. Raise the dead. And now he says, it's time I'm going to ride into Jerusalem. And of course, the, the whole rowdy scene gets under the skin of the religious establishment. The Pharisees are saying, look, stop this madness, Jesus. This is crazy. And he says, if you try to stop it, the stones are going to cry out. Now, I, I want to pause right there for a second because some of us don't really like this kingly claim. We might be here this morning and we're like, I want Jesus to be my therapist, but I don't want him to be my king. We might say, I'm here because, you know, I want to understand a little bit about what Jesus teaches in terms of his ethics, but I, I don't want to have to wrestle with the fact that he claims to be Lord of my life. But if you want to have a real relationship with Jesus, you got to deal with who Jesus really is. And Jesus is saying, I'm the king. I didn't come to just be a little help. I didn't come just to give you a TED talk. I, I, I came to exercise my kingly authority and bring my, bring my kingdom. You know, there's something unsettling and a little disturbing about that. And if we don't feel it, we're, we probably haven't listened well to what Jesus has been saying. 
But here's the thing. There's something a little off about this moment. And it's there on the surface, but we often just don't think about it. That here he is coming into Jerusalem, proclaiming that he's king, and he's riding on a donkey. The scene is almost pathetic or comical. I want you to think about uh, today we're going to have a visit from the President of the United States. And so everybody's lining up on the streets and he's going to come and visit Grace Presbyterian Church. And uh, as the crowds part and the people are cheering, suddenly you see President Biden on a tricycle. <laughs> and you got the streamers on the side and the honk, horn honking, honk, 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 right? That's the image. You're like, okay, like... This isn't quite as oppressive as we thought this was going to be. Um, and then I want you to think about his entourage. Because who was it that gathered around this king? It wasn't the important people of society. It wasn't the people who everyone wanted to get close to. And it wasn't golden chariots that pulled him along with polished armor and captives in his train, right? It was people who had been blind. And begged on the side of the street. It was a woman who had bled for 12 years. No one wanted to touch her or be near her. It was a prostitute who had wept at his feet. It was hated and despised tax collectors that no one wanted to be around. This isn't the company that you would expect with a king. This is a different kind of king. He's bringing a different kingdom. And you know, it's not noted by Luke here, but it is noted by other gospel writers that this actually, this riding on a colt into Jerusalem was the subject of prophecy. If you go back and read Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, this is how God says it was going to go down. And one of the things in that text, and this is really important, is that this king riding on a colt would bring peace to the nations. And would extend God's reign to the ends of the earth. So what Jesus is doing in this moment is both raising expectations and also violating them in other ways. And people are wrestling with what exactly is happening here. This king is coming in weakness, not in power. He's rejecting the symbols of coercion and domination that belong to kingship in the ancient world. And he's coming in humility because he's coming to deliver, but just from more than what they thought they needed deliverance from. You know, pretty soon, the people who are cheering are going to have their expectations crushed because they had an agenda for Jesus and he refused to meet it. And maybe that's you. Maybe this morning... Um, you actually need to ask the question, what have been my expectations of God? You know, some of them ex us expect him to be a matchmaker. Right? God, why haven't you found me a spouse yet? Others of us, we expect him to be like a super nanny. God, why haven't you made my children into who I've hoped and dreamed that they would be? Right? Some of us want to be a doctor. God, why haven't you fixed this thing about me, taken away my depression, removed this anxiety? That is traveling me. Some of us want him to be our wealth manager. Like, God, like, come on now, you know? <laughs> I, I, I need some help here. And sociologists and scientists talk about the reward prediction error. You know about this? 
that your dopamine system goes into overdrive because you have these great expectations and then it doesn't happen, right? And it's like doubly devastating to you. And it crushes you. And I want to suggest to you that sometimes God actually smashes our expectations to bits. But it's only because he wants us to give, he wants to give us a better story to live by. So this is Jesus' ride into Jerusalem. Great expectations. But boy, it's not going to go down exactly how everyone was thinking. And here's the second act I want us to look at. And that is Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. You know, as Jesus is riding into town, he comes, he's making his way down this, the slope from the Mount of Olives, and he sees the city of Jerusalem, and we're told he bursts into sobs. Jesus cries. Why is Jesus weeping over this city that he's coming to? What is it that broke his heart? And this is what we're told. It was the rejection of his people. After all they had seen, after everything they'd witnessed, they still didn't know the things that make for peace. That's what verse 42 says. They didn't want what he was offering. And Jesus has some unsettling words. Verse 43, the days will come. Now, that's a Hebraic idiom that's often used as a warning in the prophets of the Old Testament. And it's a warning of God's judgment. Now, we've heard about this in the Gospel of Luke. We've even had the advantage of going past this point in his ministry and looking at some of those words over the last few weeks during Lent. And he, can, you know, he talks about this while he's in the temple for the days that follow. And this destruction of Jerusalem that he's talking about, it became a historical reality in 70 AD. The city was surrounded by imperial troops. General Titus set up siege works around its walls. Stones were tore down, streets got bloody. But what you have to see and cannot forget is the tears. Jesus mourned for Jerusalem. He sees in Jerusalem an Israel that has lost its way. It has it had lost its calling to be a light to the nations, and it had taken on the ways of Rome. And that would end up crushing them. So Jesus weeps. I don't know about you, but have you ever had anyone weep for you? I, I told this story several years ago, but looking out, I'm like, a lot of y'all weren't even here. So I'm going to tell it again. When I, was, when I was 13 years old, uh, I was a pretty wild kid. Uh, my family had imploded. We had lost our house. We were homeless. This woman who was a Christian took me and my mother in. And uh, yeah, there's a whole beautiful story there. Uh, but one night... Uh, me and a couple of buddies uh, decided that we were going to borrow, and by borrow, I mean take without permission, uh, the car of one of their older brothers and do a little joy ride about 2 a.m. And uh, it was a lot of fun until around 4 a.m. we got pulled over by the cops who thought we were drunk drivers, okay? Because we're 13 and 14 years old. And I remember distinctly when the cop you know, pulls us over and we are just like, we're falling apart in the car. And the cop comes up, knocks on the window, and he shines his light in. And then he pauses, and he's like, how old are y'all? You know? And I'm like, 13, you know? And Brian Kirkpatrick says, 14. And then Mike Pierce, best line ever, 14 and a half. Right? As if that half, oh, 14 and a half, almost there, you know? Uh, so 
Anyways, uh, apparently, and I had this reconstructed later by what my mother told me. Apparently, I tried to, the, 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 the cop put us each in, there were three cop cars who showed up. They put us each in their backs of their cars. And apparently, I tried to sweet talk uh, the, the police officers say, you know, my mom's been through a lot. Like, we've gone through a lot. Like, you can just drop me off at my house and we can just forget this whole thing happened, right? But he did it. He took me to the house that we were staying at. And uh, unbeknownst to me, the police had actually called that house. The woman whose house we were staying in answered the phone. They asked if she was David Jones's mother. She said, no, I'm not. But she had to go wake my mother up. My mom got on the phone and they said, are you David Jones' mother? They asked and they're like, we have your son. And of course, what's my mom's first question? Is he okay, right? And the dispatcher's like, we cannot tell you anything right now, you know? So this is, the, this is where my mom's at in that moment, right? So the police officer takes me to the door and uh, we are greeted by my mother in her nightgown, you know? And then the police officer leaves and I'm kind of like, please stay. I'm about to be strangled to death, you know? Um, but, but I wasn't. Uh, instead, my mom burst into tears. And those tears did more for me than any punishment that I could have received. Because I knew her weeping for me was her weeping over the way I was going. She knew I was on the path of destruction, and it made her sob. Listen, judgment is very, very real. Jesus talks about it, but you must never forget the tears. Jesus looks at your life, and he looks at mine the way a parent looks at a child going down a path that is going to ruin them, and he weeps. He doesn't wag his finger and scold and say, I told you so. He says, you are breaking my heart. This isn't what I wanted for you. Jesus responds to their hard-heartedness, not with spite and bitterness, but with tears. The hardness of their hearts broke his. He is the king who weeps even for his enemies. The tenderness of Jesus is found in his tears. And this is the king that no one expected. Here's the third action that we have before us this morning. It's after telling disciples he's going to ride into Jerusalem. It's a kingly claim, but it's there's something off script here, right? And then he's weeping over Jerusalem. The first thing he does when he gets into the city is he goes right into the temple. He drives out the money changers, and he settles in to teach about the kingdom of God at least over the next and this action is actually pulsing with significance. Because hundreds of years before, the prophet Malachi had predicted that the Lord would come to his temple and refine and purify it. Malachi 3. Jesus, by his action, is claiming, I am the Lord who comes to cleanse the temple. And you know, Luke's account is very sparse here. There's no mention of turning over tables. There's no mention of the whip and the cords. There's very few of the details that the other Gospels include. And I think the reason is, is because Luke wants to focus all our attention on one thing. And that is why Jesus is doing this. And this is why. The mission of the temple was being ruined. And it wasn't being ruined by the Romans. It was being 
ruined by God's people. Jesus says, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of robbers. And there's all these echoes in those words of Old Testament language. Echoes of the prophet Jeremiah. Echoes of the prophet Isaiah. You know, house of prayer here is shorthand for something. It's found in Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7. Go back and look again. And you know what it's about? It's about God's heart for the nations. About God's vision that the nations would come to his temple in Jerusalem. And they would find healing by meeting with God and experiencing cleansing from their sins. But you know what happened? Over time, Israel turned inward. Concerned only for itself and its kingdom. And Jesus shows up to clean house. His whole ministry is about realigning us with God's purposes. But this is where things get really, really interesting. Israel thought Messiah would come to cleanse the temple of all foreigners. Those people are putting us under their thumb, who are ruining the world. But Jesus comes to clear the temple for them. And it ends up happening in a way that no one would expect. Jesus becomes the sacrifice to reconcile us to God and bring us into God's presence. And not only that, but to bring peace between the nations. That's why Jesus ends up on the cross by the end of the week. Because he comes to bear the judgment of God against sin in his own body as the final sacrifice. That is what is at the heart of the Christian faith. It's how we get reconciled to God, and it is how we are reconciled to one another. Now I want you to think about this question for a second. I really mean this. Who do you want God to judge? Do you want God to judge the people that you think are ruining the world? And it's, 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 it's amazing, isn't it, right? Because some of us want God to judge the anti-vaxxers. And others of us want God to judge the woke crowd. And some of us want God to, to judge the supporters of systemic injustice. And others of us want God, God to judge the promoters of socialism and Marxism, right? But you know what the cross does? Is it comes and it says, you have to grapple with how you are contributing to the ruin of the world. And I've actually come to deal with that in you. I I was talking to somebody recently, and they said, you know, there's basically three views of humanity that we have, right? The first one is, everybody's basically a good person. And if you hold that view, you're sleeping through life, okay? There's just no other way to describe it, because there is no way of accounting for the amount of horror and atrocities the human history has brought if everybody's basically a good person, okay? So the second view is this. <clears throat> Some people are good and others are bad. And you're like, yeah, that makes a little more sense. That makes a little more sense. Except you do realize that this view is actually at the root of almost every single brutality and atrocity that has ever happened in human history. Because everybody who's been the agent of that has been, we're the good people, we're exterminating the bad people. That's how this works. So we should maybe say, "Uh, it's not such a great view after all, right? And then there's a third view, which is evil is in every human heart. And it's got to be dealt with. 
past week I had coffee with an old friend. And uh, the subject turned to the two conversational no-nos, politics and religion, okay? <clears throat> we went there, and my friend is from Iran, and uh, he grew up Muslim, but he now considers himself an agnostic. And he's dabbled with Christianity over the years um, a bit, and, uh, but in the past few years, he's actually become incredibly disappointed with the public behavior of people who identify as Christians. Now he has very little contact with anyone who identifies with the Christian community. But he said something that really registered with me this past week. He said, you know, the thing that has always attracted me to Christianity is this. Pretty much every religion I've encountered separates the world into good and bad people. Adherents of the religion are the good, and then those who are not are bad. But Christianity is different. It says we are all fundamentally flawed, and the only way we can be saved or healed is by grace. And I'm like, he's so close to the kingdom of God. It is only by grace that we can be saved. That is what Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter are all about. God saving through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. You've heard the phrase, for something dirty to get clean, something clean has to get dirty. It's a very important like, parenting principle to help your children understand. Because they say, can you help me clean stuff? And they're like taking a dirty rag, you know, on a dirty counter. And you're like, this doesn't work this way, right? For something dirty to get clean, something clean has to get dirty. Finally, you get it, you know, but we, we seem to have a harder time getting it when it comes to our own spirituality. If there is evil in us and we are spiritually dirty, where is the clean that can make us new? Friends, Jesus was absolutely clean, spotless, and he got dirty for you. So that you and I, though dirty, could be made clean. It is all by grace. And you know what this does? It reconciles us to God, but it actually gives us the grounds for reconciling with one another. And Jesus is a different kind of king who brings a different kind of kingdom. He didn't come to make the world a little bit better. He came to make it new. The world doesn't need to simply be improved. It needs to be reborn. And you and I don't need to simply improve. We need to be reborn and enter the kingdom of God. And you know what part of that is? Part of that means dying to our expectations about how we think life should go. And trusting in the one who died and was raised to newness of life to bring new creation. Tailor our expectations to who God is, not the other way around. We die to living for our own kingdom. We rise to resting in his Jesus might be crushing your expectations in life right now. That may be happening. But our expectations have to go through a death and a resurrection. Dying to our dreams for ourselves and rising to the dreams God has for his world. Following the king, giving your life to him. God does not always give us what we want. But he gives us what we always need. And that is his grace. Now, I promised I'd say something about the building. It, something crazy takes place after Jesus' death and resurrection. But the temple, they continue to meet in it and learn, but it begins to recede into the background. And something 
is said about that gathering of followers of Jesus. Do you know what one of the things they're called is? The temple of God. Paul actually writes about this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you, though being far off, were brought near by the blood of Jesus, his sacrifice. And now you're fitting together with one another as living stones and being built up into a holy temple under the Lord in which God makes his presence known. And he says it unites Jew and Gentile. Two people groups who had a history of hostility and hatred to each other. Coming together in this thing called the church that isn't about the building. But it's about rooting yourself in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, this building is fantastic and we should give thanks to God for it. But what matters most is what we do in it and with it. Will we use it to build our kingdom, which is the path of ruin and destruction? Or will we use it to bear witness to his? And you know how it all begins? With us on our knees and on our face, recognizing the ways in which we contribute to ruining the world. And receiving God's grace again and again and again. It makes us new. It makes us united. It keeps us focused on the king, who's a very different kind of king, who brings a kingdom that is a very different type of kingdom. May God help us. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful uh, for your great story, which is so much bigger and better and more hopeful than the little stories that we're busy crafting and trying to tell with our lives. Jesus, we thank you for your kingship and for your kingdom, the heart of which is your death and your resurrection from the dead. Lord, forgive us for the expectations and agendas that we have for you that aren't aligned with this kingdom. And Lord, break us of those that we might experience a death and a resurrection, rising to it the bigger hope and the bigger dream of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, would you do that in our hearts right now? And would you make us a people who want to bear witness to Jesus and his kingdom, not only here in Silicon Valley, but all the way to the ends of the earth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.